Well, let's take another moment and just ask the Lord to bless our time as we study His Word. Father, we thank You again that we can open Your Word together, that we can trust it, that we understand it to be authority, to be absolute authority for all life and godliness. We understand it to be true in every way. And so we pray, Lord, that this morning as we look at it, it would it would penetrate our hearts. It would accomplish all that you have promised it would accomplish as it goes forth. We know that it will not return to you empty. And so, Lord, use it in that way. Bless our lives by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would take your Bibles this morning with me and turn in them to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter We find ourselves in verse 27, and we're going to continue down through verse 32 this morning. And so I want to read these verses for us, and then we'll begin to unpack them together. Luke writes, And after that he went out and noticed a tax gatherer named Levi sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. And he left everything behind and rose and began to follow him. Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax gatherers and other people who were reclining at the table with him. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax gatherers and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The very profound text, the very profound words from the Lord Jesus Christ as he continues his ministry in Israel. And this morning, we are continuing to see in this section what we began to see last Lord's Day, really, in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus is beginning to face opposition. Opposition to His ministry, opposition to Himself, even opposition to those who are around Him. He has, of course, shown that He has absolute authority over every kind of sickness, He and He alone and those whom He delegates, as we will see a little bit later in the Gospel, He alone has the power over sickness. And the people who have followed Him have witnessed His healing of all of those who they were bringing to Him who were sick. He has also shown His absolute authority over the demonic powers of darkness. He, as those who were brought to him who were demon-possessed, he, by commanding the demonic world, casts them out. And the demonic world does exactly what he says. They do it immediately as he says it, and they do only what he says. He has shown his absolute power and authority to bestow upon mankind what man needs most, as we saw last Lord's Day, as Jesus alone has the authority to forgive sins. And now, as we think through all of those realities, we we must not forget that God has a twofold purpose in dealing with mankind. 
God's purpose is, first of all, He has a desire to embrace sinners. God, by His very nature and by His very character and His compassion and mercy, desires to embrace sinners. And yet, and very importantly, secondly, He will always refuse to embrace sinners who already consider themselves righteous. Let me say that again. God desires to embrace sinners, and yet God will refuse to embrace any sinner who already considers themselves righteous. Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, Jesus says to the people these short but very profound words, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, in order to gain salvation, one must repent and believe. And that means that the gospel is not for the good people in the world. The gospel is for those who know that they are not good. The gospel is for the bad people in the world. Why? Because God's desire is to extend forgiveness and cleansing from the guilt of sin to those who know they need it. That has been the message of the gospel from the very beginning. And that gospel message brings immediate division. I know we would like to think that the gospel is this great reality of unifying, and in a grand sense it is unifying because it unifies all of us who once hated one another into this body of believers, and yet at the very essence of the gospel is this division that happens. It is a message that separates It separates because the gospel makes definitive declarations about the condition of man. It declares things about mankind that man does not want to hear. And then upon those declarations, the gospel commands all men everywhere to repent, to believe upon Jesus Christ. Gospel commands all men to turn from sin to Christ. The problem, the problem is that in order to turn from sin, one must first acknowledge that they are in sin. And that is where the divide comes. Some acknowledge and most refuse. You say, really? It's that drastic? Yes, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, these very familiar words to us. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Where are they going into? They're going into destruction. 
Many go in by that way. Many go into destruction by the wide road. It leads to destruction and the many are on it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. The broad way is easy. The narrow way is hard. And the heart of man loves ease. We love the easy. It's easy to be easy. It's easy to do the easy. And so the gospel is a a divining road. It is not a divided road in the sense that there's more gospels than one gospel. It isn't a divided road. It is a dividing road. And as we learned last Lord's Day in our study, the outcome of repentance is forgiveness of sin. The outcome of of a heart's desire to to have your, your sin forgiven is just that, by the gracious mercy and compassion of God. It is the forgiveness of sins, which God is the only one who has the power and authority to give. There is forgiveness nowhere else. There is not forgiveness by walking into a small booth and confessing to some man who says, go and do these various things and thereby your sins will be forgiven you. It is only by God and God alone. And so the theme of the Gospel is that men must turn from sin if God is to forgive. Men must turn from sin if God is to forgive. And the only people who are granted the privilege of salvation and an eternity of of dwelling with God in the presence of God for all eternity and granted therefore forgiveness are the only ones who are granted that forgiveness are the ones who acknowledge their sin before God and thereby repent of their sin. Furthermore, anyone who refuses to acknowledge their sinfulness or We could say it this way, those who see themselves as if they are okay in the sight of God, they are righteous before God in and of themselves already, because in and of themselves they are in their own eyes righteous, and therefore they see no need for repentance, no need therefore to have anything forgiven of them, because they see themselves as being righteous already, Those, the reality is that they have put aside the only means of salvation. If you believe in some way that you are okay before God and have nothing to be forgiven of, then you have pushed aside the only means of salvation and you are on the broad road. You have taken the easy way which leads to destruction. This, beloved, is the driving principle in this very text before us. That is the driving action that Luke is presenting here. And we find one of the most important statements that you will ever hear from the mouth of Jesus Christ. It's the very reason He came to this earth. And it reveals to us 
the, the demarcation line, if you will, between salvation and condemnation. It's right there before us in verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus Christ came into this world, God incarnate in the form of man, God Himself, so that He might call sinners to Himself. So that He might save sinners. And it is only sinners that He saves. Let's get that clear in our minds. Let's not try to try to make some universal salvation out of anything that God does. God saves only one kind of person. God saves the ungodly. God saves the sinner. That's the only person He saves. He does not save the already righteous. He does not save someone who in their own minds, in their own hearts, is not a sinner. In fact, it is ludicrous to think, and it defies any real logic, even fallen logic, to profess that Jesus came to save righteous people. If they are already righteous, then they do not need saving. And what is even more pertinent to the situation for all of us here today, what is more pertinent for all the rest of living humanity is that the Bible tells us that without Christ there is no one righteous. No one. No one seeks after God. No one is righteous. All have gone astray. No one does good. Not even one. The wide road is filled with the many who consider themselves as righteous. And many of those many sit in churches like this and other evangelical locations across the world claiming that they know Jesus Christ and they are on the wide road. They consider themselves as being right before God, and yet they reject Jesus Christ. And the Bible says no one is righteous, and Jesus, who is salvation, offers no help to those who say they are righteous to those who believe in of themselves that they are righteous. Therefore, no one who is righteous in their own minds is saved because the Bible says that no one comes to God except through who? Jesus Christ. No one. No one is righteous. No one seeks after God. The only way to come to God is through Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself says, John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He does not say there, beloved, I am a way. He doesn't say, I am one of many truths. He doesn't say, I am many, 
one of many roads in order to get to God, as many foolish people try to say today. Oh, everybody's going there. They're just on different roads. We all end up in the same place. That is a false lie from the pit of hell. Jesus said, I am the way. And the reason that people hate the gospel is because the gospel calls them out on that issue. The gospel says that Jesus is the way. The gospel exposes the lost state of their heart. And no one will ever come to the Savior until they realize they need a Savior. So the first step in evangelizing is to help people understand they are lost. To help people realize that the map they're on is not a map that will take them to glory. They are lost. No one will come to the Savior if they do not have a need for a Savior. It has been said in the past that conversion occurs with the person who is willing to accept the death sentence upon them and also the acquittal given by God for them through Jesus Christ. So the dividing line in the Gospel brings about either a positive or a negative response. When the Gospel comes, the Gospel declares. And the Gospel says, here is your way. There is a wide way, there is a narrow way. And there is either a positive or a negative response. And this morning we get a glimpse at two different responses to the gospel. The damned sinner is called and receives, and the damned righteous hear and reject. You notice they are both in the same starting place, they are both of the damned, they are both of those who are on the wide road. One is called and he receives. The other hears and rejects. Verse 27 says, and after that he went out. After that he went out. We can only imagine the buzz that was taking place in Capernaum where Jesus had chosen to reside for some time after Jesus had just proven His authority to the very Pharisees who were there in the midst as the man was lowered down through the roof right in front of Jesus. And Jesus proves His very authority to forgive sins by healing the man. And the man takes up his bed and walks out. There surely would have been others amongst the crowd. Surely other people who were watching, who were there, other men, other women. And they were wondering, I wonder if my sins can be forgiven. Jesus said to this man, your sins are forgiven you, friend. And, and He heals the man and He proves the reality of what He has the authority to do. Surely, I wonder if my sins can be forgiven also. Maybe, maybe my sin is just too great for God to forgive. Maybe I'm too far gone. Maybe... Maybe you walked in here this morning thinking that in your mind. 
maybe I'm too far gone. Maybe you're wondering, can God forgive my sin? Can my life with all of its secret evils that nobody else knows but my heart surely knows, can God wash that away? These are the questions that some will ask. And these are the questions that get answered as we just look at Jesus Christ in ministry. Can my sins, no matter how big or how small, can they be forgiven? Christ answers that question this morning. Look at it with me. First, the miraculous call from Christ. The miraculous call from Christ. Verse 27, And after that he went out and noticed a tax gatherer named Levi sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. Now remember, as we learned last time, every event in the Gospels is enveloped with the scenery. What is going on in the scene? And because you and I removed some 2,000 plus years from the moment, and also because we think with Western thinking and we're not uh, Near East thinkers, we need to take some time to get ourselves into the culture, into the scene. And God, by His grace, helps us do that. Here in verse 27, we get some of the scene. Jesus had just left the home whereby He had had healed the man who was paralyzed. And more importantly, as we have already said, He showed in that moment the very reality that he has absolute authority to forgive sins. The Pharisees even called it out as they were dis- as they were disdained by what he was doing. How can this man say that? Only God can forgive sins. Yes, they're right. And Jesus proves that he has authority. Therefore, he's proving even that moment, God is with you. It's an intense moment of exposure. To those who were there in that very moment, who saw themselves as righteous. And it's a a refreshing moment for those who saw themselves like that man on the bed who paralyzed. They were seeing themselves in that same condition in a spiritual way, paralyzed by sin. And so Christ has now left the house Mark's parallel synopsis of the scene says he was going by the sea of the shore of Galilee. It would have been a short walk from where he was there in Capernaum. And the crowds are continuing to come to him, and in his grace, he continues to minister to them. 
And verse 27 says, And he went out and noticed a tax gatherer named Levi sitting in the tax office. You can stop right there for a moment. In the Gospel of Matthew, same account. It doesn't use the name Levi. It uses the name that we best know Levi by, which is the name Matthew. He's identified in Mark's Gospel as the son of Alphaeus. Luke doesn't give those details. Why the difference? Well, first of all, it wasn't unusual for people, even during the ancient times, men in particular, to be known by more than one name. We know Peter as Simon. It's Simon and it's Peter. And even today, we often call one another by different names, right? My name is Terry. That's my first name. My surname is Rag, so I'm Mr. Rag. Some of you call me other kind of pet names that you've made up for me. Some of you use them in derogatory ways, but I've taken them as as terms of endearment. You really love me. Some of them start with J. I won't fill in the other letters. Just a side note, by the way, we're not sure how Levi came to be known as Matthew. The Bible doesn't give us that. We know that that Jesus said, Simon, you're not going to be called this anymore. You're going to be called Peter. But there's nowhere in the gospel that says, okay, now Levi, this is going to be your new name. But historians believe it was probably given to him by Christ sometime after his conversion similar to Simon's. And they say that because his name, Matthew, means gift of the Lord. Gift of the Lord. Each time, by the way, after you read about Levi in the Gospels, after this very moment, he is mentioned not as Levi, but as Matthew. So Jesus is walking and he sees Levi sitting in the tax office. That that just kind of makes us cringe, doesn't it? In light of news that we have in our day today. But it wasn't unusual, right? Capernaum was a city and a very busy trade route in the ancient Near East. A lot of people passed through Capernaum. It was a very important city to the Roman Empire. And therefore, it was an important place for collecting taxes, collecting tariffs from the people who lived there and those who passed through the region. So the Roman Government had a large garrison of soldiers there. Those soldiers certainly would have been used as the police force also to ensure that things were going well. And Levi was one of many tax gatherers in the area. It would have been IRS central in the Roman government of Galilee. The original name, the original Roman name or Latin name for a tax gatherer is the word we hear often, a publicani or a publican. That's the Latin term for them. In other words, he worked for the Roman government against his own people. He was a Jew who had been a government employee, if you will, against his own people, and so the nature of his position was first to be loyal to Rome. One Jewish scholar named Alfred Edersheim has written much about the Jewish culture. 
And he wrote a book some years ago called Sketches of Jewish Social Life. It's not a rather lengthy book, but there's a lot of good information in there. And he mentions that there were two types of publicans. One was formerly known as a tax farmer. The other was a tax collector. You say, what's the difference? Well, during Roman rule, areas of commerce, like the area around Galilee, were sold at auction for the taxation rights to the highest bidder. So they would bid these out every year in order to make money, and those who bid on them could buy this region for tax purposes. And the person who got that bid was known as the tax farmer. And then the tax farmer would employ under his care lesser tax collectors who would go out and collect in that area. And of course, all of that meant the Roman government had sold it at a price, which meant that 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 person who owned that had to give to the Roman government a certain amount of money over time, and that meant that the tax farmer would tell the tax collectors exactly what they needed to exact so that he would make his cut off the top and be able to send it to the government, and then those who were tax collectors would get whatever they could in order that they might have a living as well. So taxes like income tax, taxes like property tax, taxes like registration fees, all of those things, much like our own IRS. And they would also be responsible for collecting the use taxes. So Anybody who wanted to use the Sea of Galilee for fishing, Peter certainly would have known Levi because Levi would have known Peter and Andrew and James and John and their fishing business because he would have been the one who was leveling taxes on them for all the things they brought in, including the fish that they brought in. So taxes there would have been for import taxes, export taxes, tolls, boat fees, business licenses, whatever there was, and even things they didn't have official taxes on, the tax collector could set a tax upon it, and the Roman soldiers would come in and ensure that it got paid. Why? Because any portion of the money that they got would go back to Rome. And so if you were a tax collector, you had a whole lot of latitude in your power of taxing. Thank goodness today that while we are taxed and maybe becoming more taxed, there at least is some sense in which the IRS person who you might talk to on the phone has no latitude to just do whatever they want against you. But then they could, and so they could attach tax to virtually anything. Whatever you did. And so the tax collector would do their own assessing and collecting so that they could give to the tax farmer. And the tax farmer would send the required amount back to Rome because he had the right to own the area, at least for that year. And all of this was just a big profit machine. That's all it was. Just a grand, massive profit money-making machine. And the more you could extract from people, the more you could make for yourself. And while the tax farmers were hated, the tax collectors were even more hated. This was Levi. This was Levi. It says here he was a tax gatherer. The word is telonase in the original language, and it, it really means the end of things. He was the one at the end of 
which, which in some ways possibly might make him a tax farmer. Levi potentially could have been a tax farmer. And so he was a publican of the worst kind. And it's to this kind of person. It's to this societal hated man. This worst kind of person. The one that we would all recoil from. The one that we would say, I'm not going to talk to that guy. I don't want to have anything to do with that guy. In fact, I try to to skirt around that guy. I don't want to see that guy. I don't want to look into his eyes because every time I do, there's something that comes out of my pocket. I don't want to do with that guy anything, and yet this is the worst kind of guy in society, and yet this is the kind that Jesus extends his authoritative call to. Sin to the highest, not only in his own heart, but sin to the highest even in the eyes of other people who thought they weren't as sinful. Jesus says, follow me. Simple call. Listen, all of those who may have been asking in their own hearts, is my sin forgivable? Would have witnessed Christ's words to Levi. Remember, this large crowd is following him. They would have witnessed Jesus extending forgiveness to the worst and most hated of individuals. Luke doesn't give us any detail as to what Levi might have said. He doesn't tell us anything of, by way of, of words out of Levi's mouth when Jesus commands him. This is not a suggestion. This is an imperative. It is a command from Jesus. Levi, follow me. And yet, while Luke doesn't tell us anything, it is patently clear from the context that Levi had a deep conviction in his heart about his own sin and his need for forgiveness. You say, why do you say that? Because verse 28 says, and he left everything behind and rose and began to follow him. His office is not far from downtown Capernaum. Certainly had heard about Jesus Christ from others. He probably even watched Jesus from time to time. He likely knew, as I said, Peter and his associates in the fishing business. Levi might have been sitting there as those four men walked past with their friend on the bed to the house and then watched that man walk past himself under his own power, carrying his bed a little bit later. Levi seems that it seems he had a heart's desire for the forgiveness that Christ could offer. And the text shows us that with his marvelous response in verse 28. You have the miraculous call in verse 27. Secondly, his marvelous response, he left everything behind and rose and began to follow Him. 
Don't, don't think too lightly on that. This is a response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a response to the living gospel calling you out. This was no small change in response to that command from Christ in Levi's life. This is no small change. Listen, Levi was a wealthy man. If he was the tax farmer, he had enough wealth to bid the highest bid to buy the region. And if he wasn't the tax farmer, he certainly was a wealthy man, as we will see, because he gives a pretty grand reception in his own home. You had to be wealthy to have a home that kind of size. So this change of life is so radical, in fact, that the text even says here, he left everything behind. He left everything behind. Now we have to take note of that when we think about the salvation in the heart of a person. You cannot be one who knows Jesus Christ and not forsake the hold you have on the things of life. God changes you. The simple call from Christ was enough for Levi to drop everything he held close. He left his position as a tax collector. He left his livelihood by way of income that he was drawing from that. He was an agent of Rome. Leaving his post was surely going to require that he could never have that post again. Levi, in that moment of Jesus' calling, weighs the cost. He counts the cost. He knows the cost, and he willingly follows. Listen, beloved, that is what Jesus does when he saves. That's what Jesus does. Salvation is free, but salvation is not cheap. Salvation is free, but it is not cheap. To follow Christ is give away your grip on all that defines you. To follow Christ is to relinquish to Christ all that is yours so that He can do with it what He wills, not what you will. You say, is that, is that really... What he's saying? Well, turn over for a moment to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, Jesus is going to get very, very pointed on this issue. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 16. Right? Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath. Pharisees are getting angry with him. So this feast is brought about. There's guests there at this feast. He's reclining at the table with these guests. And he says to them, verse 16, A certain man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour he sent a slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. 
But they all alike began to make excuses. I love that because sometimes we say, well, they're just giving an answer for why they can't. Usually that's just an excuse. And an, an excuse is words that are used as an answer, but they're not an answer. They're an excuse. They all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. So one guy says, I got a new piece of property. I got to go check it out. I, want, I don't want to be there. Somebody else says, I bought a new car. I got this new car to drive. I want to check it out. Test the wheels out. Go push the gas. Get the engine going. Don't let me go. I don't want to go. Another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason I can't come. My wife says, no, you're not going. Are you kidding me? You can't go to that event. You've got to stay home with me. And the slave came back and reported to his master. Then the head of the household came, became angry and said to his slave, look, go out once into the streets and into the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. The slave said, Master, what you've commanded has been done. There's still room. The master said, then good. Go out into the highways, into the hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Why? Great multitudes are going along with him. And he turns to them and he says, if anyone comes to me, doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brother or sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, therefore no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. He's not listen, saying, listen, go and sell everything you have and become a monk in the, in, the, in the hills and just give it all up. No, he's saying, listen, you need to relinquish your grip on all your own resources. Let it be under Christ. Christ is to rule. Salvation's cheap. Free, I should say, but it's not cheap. Levi loses his career. He loses his material possessions. He loses his temporal security. But he gains in his own life his eternal destiny. He gains the inheritance that's with us in Christ, the spiritual fortune. He gains glory with God alone. We need to be reminded that when a person is truly saved, the reality is when they understand what they've been forgiven of, they cannot leave their old life fast enough. When someone is saved and they realize what God has forgiven them from and of, they, they can't leave their old life quick enough. That's what Levi does. He abandons his old life. And just like many, many a new believer today, they just can't wait to tell their friends. And so what does Levi do? Thirdly, the massive reception. Verse 29, Levi gave a big reception. The word big is megas. This is huge. 
This is a large reception for Jesus in his house. This is no small place. Levi was a wealthy man. He, he wasn't a Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus uh, seemed to have even more money. But he had a large house, and there was a great crowd of tax gatherers, telenase, those who, were, those who went out collecting, and other people who were reclining at the table with them. So Levi, being so overwhelmed at the grace of Christ in his life, in that one moment where God calls him, he sets out to invite all his friends and all of his colleagues to hear from Jesus. In fact, the text here says that there were tax gatherers and other people, or others that were sitting with them. Look in the other parallel passages especially Mark's gospel. Mark says it was tax gatherers and sinners. Well, we know the others are that here too, because that is exactly what the Pharisees say. Why do you drink and eat with tax gatherers and sinners? So we know who the tax gatherers are. They're the low life extortionists from among the people. They're the IRS agents. They're sent to your house to get whatever they need and whatever they want to take, even over and above what they need to take. They're the local government arm sent to oppress. Well, they, Matthew, Levi, gathers all of those kinds of group of people from the other communities around, even those within Capernaum. Why? They had to stick together. They were so unliked. And the others that were invited were sinners. Not the name Levi would have called them. He would have just called them colleagues. But this is the name that those who consider them so righteous called them. Sinners. This is the group of other common criminals, other sinners, prostitutes, those who were irreligious. Surely in the group would have been common robbers and thieves and maybe even murderers. Certainly we would group that whole group together and call them the Riffraff, the criminal riffraff of society. For the religious Jews, especially for the scribes and Pharisees, no one was going to associate with anyone from that kind of group unless you were part of that group. Why? Because if you associated with them, you would become ceremonially unclean. That's why they called them sinners. These are the religious, the proclaimed righteous. For them, that term sinner equated with people, anyone who had no respect for the Mosaic law, no respect for the things of God, no respect for any of the traditions that the Pharisees and Sadducees would have drummed up that the people needed to carry out. And yet these are the very people that Jesus came to save. Guess who's in that group? Us. We're there. That's us. We're the sinners. We may not have committed the sin specifically in action that they may have committed, but the seed of that sin is in each one of us to carry it out to the fullest in our hearts. And Jesus came to forgive sin. So Levi's marvelous response was immediate. And it was evidenced by his desire to introduce others to his new master. He couldn't wait to share the good news. He, he wanted others to hear the gospel. He wanted others to know Christ. 
Levi hears the call, Levi receives it, is forgiven and goes out and begins to share Christ with others right away. What about the righteous? What are they doing? Notice verse 30, the maligning resentment. The maligning resentment and the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax gatherers and sinners? They didn't have the response that Matthew had. They didn't have the response that this tax collector had to the living gospel. Instead of willing reception of Jesus Christ, they maligned Christ in outrage. Why? Because according to their standards of righteousness, according to their view of themselves in the mirror, no one would sit down with that sort of people. No one would associate with the lowly, especially one who claimed to be more righteous than they were. They really didn't want an answer. They weren't looking for an explanation. This wasn't a question in order to gain understanding. They simply were making an indictment. In fact, I don't believe they thought an answer would be adequate. All they desired to do was put Jesus on the spot. And so they continually asked questions. Not because they wanted understanding. Not because they really wanted answers, but simply just to question authority. You came to to be over us. No one will be over us. And the amazing part of this whole account is this fifth point. The merciful indictment by Jesus. The merciful indictment. Verse 31 and 32, And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician. It's those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is a merciful indictment. This is the living gospel speaking to them, and it is a dividing gospel. Jesus is fully aware of their intent. He knows their thoughts. He knows what they're thinking. He knows their heart. And yet he takes their question and explains it exactly why he came and what he's doing. First, Jesus rebukes them. And his rebuke is spoken in the form of human logic. It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. That's what human logic says. No one would refute that. It makes sense. No healthy person needs to go to the doctor. You're healthy. That's logic. And so if the the Pharisees are truly spiritually healthy, then they don't need a spiritual doctor. And Christ is saying, that's why I've come to these people. These people need it. They know they need it. The analogy is rather simple, isn't it? Jesus, being the spiritual doctor, ought to be able to bring the medicine, i.e. forgiveness, to his patients. That's the analogy, 
What sort of doctor would spend his time with the healthy when there are so many sick? It's an indictment to the self-righteous heart of the Pharisees. Why? Because they are more willing. These are the spiritual leaders of Israel. They're more willing to leave those who have been diagnosed as sick even in their own minds. Why are you hanging around with the tax gatherers and the sinners? They're more willing and ready to leave those people alone in their sickness and refuse to acknowledge their own sickness. The irony is that those who claimed to be well were in fact those who were most sick. They're the most sick. And then Jesus rebukes him a second way with his divine authority. This is a divine rebuke that he was with the sick because that's what he came to do. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The reality, beloved, is this. Those who recognize their spiritual sickness hear the call of the great physician. And they hear the call. They come to Him for His healing. They come to Him for forgiveness through repentance. But those who are sick, but they think they're already well, they completely shut themselves out from from the call of Christ. They shut themselves out from the healing mercy of God simply because they refuse to acknowledge their own need. And so they reject it. They stiff-arm the call. They suppress, as Paul said in Romans 1, the truth of God in their own unrighteousness. And they walk away saying that they're on the narrow road when in fact they're on the wide road with the many. What a contrast. What a contrast. The penitent sinner who receives and the unpenitent righteous who reject. Here's the question we started with. How much sin will God forgive? How much sin will God forgive? The answer is all of it. All of it. Doesn't matter how big your pile is. Doesn't matter how black your heart is. He will forgive it all, but you must acknowledge that you are completely diseased with sin, unable to cure yourself, bound for eternal death. You must turn to Christ. You must embrace the call of the Savior. You must follow Him. Listen, the kingdom of God is filled with those who were spiritually sick who are now healed. The kingdom of God is only for those who are spiritually sick, who want to be healed. Who beg for healing from a holy God who will give healing if we would just repent. 
kingdom of God is for the spiritually corrupt who desire cleansing. It's for the spiritually dead who desire to be made alive. That's who it's for. That is simply to say the spirit or the kingdom of God is for all the ungodly who look to Christ. Yet while we were ungodly, Christ died for us. It's not why we were well. Christ came to call sinners to repentance. So what's the message? What's the message that Luke wants Theophilus to be certain about? He wants him to be certain about this very thing, that Jesus Christ is the only one who can save. It is Jesus Christ that you must follow. You must acknowledge yourself. You must acknowledge your sin before Jesus Christ. You must repent of it, turn to Him, and follow Christ. Because if you think in any way, in and of yourself, you are righteous, and that you're okay with God in your own self-proclaimed righteousness, beloved, you are on the wide road. It is only in Jesus Christ. So Luke says, listen, Theophilus, you need to have certainty about this. It is in Jesus Christ alone that repentance, forgiveness, eternal life is found. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Why? Because Jesus is your only hope. Jesus is our only hope. Doesn't stop there. We're going to see this over and over and over again as Jesus shows himself for who he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. For it is your power unto salvation for all who would believe. Lord, open our eyes to our sin. Cause us to see it for the heinousness it is. Not that it's an act of sin, but that it is a position in which we are against You. We're not worshiping You as we ought. We're not serving You as we have been created to do. We do our own thing. We go our own way. We are lost. We are like sheep without a shepherd. And You graciously sent Your Son that He might die in our place that we could have life in His name. And You say, You must believe upon Him. He is the way. So we, as Your servants, call on all sinners to repent and believe. Lord, take the scales from their eyes drive the seed of the gospel deep into the stoniness of their heart and shatter it that they might see themselves. Cause them to repent that they might know life, that they might truly know life. Thank you for your gospel. May we honor it with our lives as we honor you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.